What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and a big hour ahead on The Exchange, starting with inflation easing. You see those China numbers, leisure service spending slowing, and jobless claims hitting their highest level since last October. Is that the last shoe to drop in a downturn? Our market guest says yes, and a hard landing is next. From the pain to a possible Fed pause and how to position, we'll hit it all. And not all commercial real estate is feeling the pain. Some names could be well-positioned even into a recession. We'll speak to the CEO behind one of them. And if Disney earnings have showed us anything, it may be that the streaming wars are over. We'll tell you why and what's next for the names in that trade. Oh, and there's one more thing. I see dead economists. I see Dom looking at this with great curiosity. You'll have to stick around all hour to find out what that's about. First, let's get the markets, though, Mr. Chu. I don't know what to make of the fact that you see dead economists <laughs> sitting in your sleep. Is it kind of just right now in the newsroom? Stay tuned. Very Stay tuned. sixth sense. I don't know what to do with that. But anyway, uh, to Kelly's point, let's talk about the markets right now. Mixed picture overall. The outperformance is intact. Just a moment. We'll get to what that story is. But the Dow Industrial is down about three quarters of 1%, 237 points. 33,293 the last trade there. The S&P 500 still above that 4,100 level, 41.28. Down nine points, about one quarter of 1%. For context on the trading range so far today, at the highs of the session, we were still down about five points, five handles, down 28 points at the lows. So kind of in the middle of that range so far, tilting if you want to be optimistic a little bit more towards the upper end of that range. And the Nasdaq Composite up about one quarter of 1%, 12,328 the last trade there. One of the big reasons why there is that tech outperformance is a lot of at least momentum, positively speaking today, in Alphabet shares and consumer, uh, at least not consumer not just not consumer discretionary, but communication services overall, although consumer discretionary is doing pretty well. Alphabet shares up 5% right now, a little bit more optimism about their artificial intelligence ambitions given their presentation yesterday. Highest level going all the way back to August of last year, so keep an eye on Alphabet powering that comm services trade. And then it sounds like a broken record at this point, but we have to talk about the regional banks. PacWest Bancorp in particular You can see those shares down about 84% over the last year, down 24% today, and that's off the session lows. This is a stock, a company that came out and issued a quarterly report or a quarterly filing today saying that during the course of the week leading up to May 5th, they lost about 9.5% of their deposits, a lot of that being driven by some of the news reports that they were looking at strategic options for some of their assets and units there. PacWest, though, in the course of saying that, also said that they have ample liquidity to meet any of their requirements overall, and they have enough cash to run their business. Nonetheless, investors taken at least a very dim view on what's happening, down about 24%. And to put some dollar numbers on just how much market cap has been lost, Kelly, in the last year at the highs, this was a market cap of roughly $3.8 billion. At current levels right now, the market cap is closer to 544 
million. That's how much market value has been eroded. Keep an eye on this trade and all the other regional banks. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, we'll have a lot more on that later on. Dom, thank you very much. The struggles in commercial real estate are contributing to those concerns about the regional banks, as many office buildings remain largely empty since the pandemic. But my next guest operates grocer-anchored shopping centers and says he's well-positioned to weather any economic slowdown. Let's bring in Jeff Edison. He's chairman and CEO of Phillips Edison. They're one of the nation's biggest grocery store-anchored shopping centers. Welcome. And you're the Edison in Phillips Edison. Right? Uh, I am, Kelly. Thank you for uh, having me on today. So how long have you had, a, you know, been in this uh, specific niche? Did you did you set out to do grocer anchored or did it just evolve that way? You know, we did. We started this business about 30 years ago and we bought a grocery anchored shopping center. And over the last uh, 30 years, we've been building that portfolio. Today, we're one of the largest owners of grocery anchored shopping centers in the country. We're Kroger's largest landlord. We're uh, Publix's second largest landlord. So we're been active in the business for a long time and built a great team that, that is very focused on that very specific niche. Oh, is it truly recession-proof, or is it just that they do less bad uh, than everybody else when we have these economic downturns? You know, no retail is recession-proof, but uh, as far as resilient and, and having reacted very well to the last two very difficult situations we had, both in the great financial crisis and the pandemic, you know, we lost less than you know 0.8% of our occupancy during really? the entire pandemic and a, during the great financial crisis. We lost about 1.8% of our occupancy. Wow. So we really held together very well. And it's it's because of the necessity-based focus of our, of our shopping. Record center. high occupancy as of Q1, 97.5%. Uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, obviously, you face a little bit different headwind right now, which is maybe Kroger Albertson's merger. Now, they've said they're not going to close any stores, but that would affect you guys. You should be testifying about the impact of this because you'd <laughs> probably be one of the, the, the main uh, people being impacted. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're actually very optimistic about the merger. Um, we, we, we question whether it's going to happen or not, and certainly the market is saying that it may, may or may not happen. Right. Um, but for us, uh, you know, Kroger's a great operator, and we think that they would bring, you know, additional uh, benefits to the, to the portfolio if the merger were to come through. And if it doesn't happen, you know, we've got really strong Albertsons in our shopping centers, so they will continue to be grocery stores over a long period of time. So we're we're, we're watching it, um, and, uh, um, you know, it, 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 it's early days, I think. Yeah, Albertson shares don't look like they are necessarily pricing in high odds. Yeah. That this gets done, and after what happened with Microsoft, and, of course, we hear from Lena Khan all the time, and there just doesn't seem to be a big appetite for this right now. No, you, yeah, we're, we're seeing the same thing. It's, it, it, you know, the unions came out this week against it. Um, there, there's a lot of conversation. So they've got a long way to go, and, they, you know, we're, we're, we, we hope they can – figure out how to do it, um, but it's going it's, it's to take a little, some very different shape probably than what everyone anticipated going in. Who else are your, you know, usually there's kind of like a main grocery store anchor. There might be a few smaller kinds of stores. Who are those retailers? Where are you seeing growth? And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but the suburbs seem to be an area of strength right now because of the massive population distribution. Yeah, you know, the um, there are a lot of tailwinds in our business right now that are not necessarily tailwinds for everybody in the real estate business. Um, you know, suburbanization, uh, the, the the movement to the to uh, the southeast, um, the ability to you know buy local, all of those things, those trends, and, and particularly work from home, are pushing people longer in the suburbs, which is, has been a, very, a big benefit for us. And the new retailers are coming in and are, are recognizing that. Some are old names like Starbucks and Chipotle, but but we also have a lot of people coming in on the med tail. So really? people are trying to bring medicine closer to your home, Those so it's more clinics, convenient. Urgent care, I see them popping up everywhere. Yeah, and and it's and it's dentists and it's eye doctors. It's 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 really a wide range of trying to make it easier for you to get your 
your, your medical services done. So do you think, you know, your stock, like you said, it's not as if anybody can be recession proof, but will you guys be buying back shares? How do you expect to weather this? And what do you make of, listen, high interest rates and commercial real estate problems are in some ways a headwind for everybody. So um, what do the next, you know, 12 months look like? Yeah, you know, I, I think what, the way we see it, we, we like our, our stock. We, we don't like where it's priced right now. We think there's a lot of upside in that. But, but we, we like the fact that our, we, we have a pretty low beta because we're necessity-based. You know, 31% of our income comes from the grocer. Um, you've got uh, a, a, a very stable environment. We pay a, you know, a good dividend, so you're getting that ongoing cash flow. So there's really a, a, we, we believe there's less beta in the stock. But we also have a pretty active growth strategy. I mean, we, we, we drive a lot of internal growth by leasing space up, getting good rent spreads on our, on our, uh, on our, our neighbors as, as we uh, re renew their leases. So we, we are getting uh, that. And then we also have a very active acquisition plan. We, when, we, when we did our IPO about two years ago, we set up and we continue to be at a place where we, we can buy about a billion dollars worth of hmm. new grocery anchored shopping centers over the next three years um, without having to go back to the market. So we're excited about that kind of opportunity. No, it's fat. You know, earlier uh, we had an interview with Bill Rudin, obviously very New York City centered. Uh, and it, it, you're sort of like the complimentary side of that, you know, of some of the, the very headwinds they're experiencing, maybe tailwinds elsewhere. Jeff, thanks for your time today and joining us. Well, it was, it. it was great to be with you. And thanks for your time. I'll be thinking about you next time I go to, uh, to Kroger. <laughs> Jeff Edison with Phillips Edison. We had a 30-year bond auction. Let's get to Rick Santelli with those results. Rick? Yes, this was a best-of-breed auction, Kelly. 21 billion 30-year bonds completing the trifecta of U.S. Treasury coupon supply, which was 96 billion, and the yield at this 30-year bond Dutch auction, 3.741. Where was the one issued market trading? 3.755. So lower yield, higher price. If you're selling, you always want to sell at a higher price. So the Treasury did quite well. A is an apple for this auction. And if we look at all the metrics, they were nicely above average, except for one. Direct bidders, 17.4, a little bit below the 10 auction average. Otherwise, this one would have finished with an A+. Plus. Kelly, we see yields are down. Mm -hmm. We see that inflation on the wholesale level was down. We see initial jobless claim in particular were higher. And here we sit, down in yields from twos all the way out to 30s. Back to you. Indeed, Rick. Thank you. We appreciate it, Rick Santelli. Markets are also under pressure today after that worrisome news about the labor market. Applications for jobless benefits were up by 22,000 to 264,000 last week. It's a one and a half year high. And my next guest says it's a sign the last shoe is about to drop for a recession and a hard landing for the markets. Here with me now is Michael Kantrowitz. He's the chief investment strategist at Piper Sandler. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Kelly, you know, good to see you. In what a juxtaposition to Friday's better than expected jobs report, but you would say today matters more? Well, it's why we need to look at a breadth of data. And there's about literally 30 different data sets we look to corroborate all of the employment, especially the most popular stuff like payrolls. Right, exactly. So we already talked about how continuing claims are pointing in the wrong direction. Now we have kind of new jobless claims. But how much time do we have? You know, we, it's been the most telegraphed downturn and hard landing, at least since the Great Recession. Um, is it going to be as bad as that one? And how much longer till stocks start uh, pricing in more of that in? Yeah. From history, you generally see that the broader markets, we're talking about the S&P, right? The S&P has done well year to date. Micro caps and small caps have not. Value stocks have underperformed. Cyclicals have underperformed. So parts of the market are reflecting the increased risks. Uh, and, and that's why I think a lot of money is rotated in some of those big cap quality growth stocks. 
So it's, it's happening. It doesn't happen at the index level really until people believe, investors believe and see that we're entering a recession. And I think claims need to go a bit higher from where they are here. And I think yeah. we'll see that later in the back half of the or year. Or obviously a negative payrolls print, then, you know, forget about it. Of course, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Also worth pointing out that you saw this dispersion after the bank crises, where we really started to see smaller yeah. companies underperform. What does that tell you? Yeah. It's, it's interesting because a lot of people attributed that to people moving into tech and moving out of financials, but it's far broader than that. We've seen literally in every one of the 11 sectors, larger companies outperform smaller companies hmm. within small caps, within value, within growth, literally all the size and style benchmarks. So it's more than just people putting money into tech and away from financials. It's people putting money into fundamental attributes that they have visibility on and have strength companies that have strength, good cash flow, balance sheets, and avoiding areas that are more cyclical, more risky, more leveraged. So I think, you know, it's easy to say, well, it's tech versus financials, right. but the same types of attributes, like I've mentioned, are working or not working in all parts of the market. So it's, it's, it's bigger than just those two sectors. And it seems to indicate there's a real fallout from kind of tightening bank lending for those companies more exposed to that. Maybe they're starting yeah. to underperform. There's two things as well when we talk about hard versus soft landing. I always think, you know, you bring two specific things that could help us get a soft landing that maybe we're not seeing right now. So I was thinking about it with the loan officer survey yeah. and also, also thinking about with regard to housing. Just explain how those two variables can tell us just how hard this landing might be. Yeah, so we have our framework of, uh, it's cutely called HOPE, housing, housing orders. Should be called No Hope, by the way. <laughs> well, it, it's hope on the way up and hope, and hope on the that's way down. True. And that stands for housing, orders, profits, and employment. So last year we saw housing and, and order data start to really come off. Um, and now we're seeing profit expectations, especially for the riskier parts of the market, uh, start to come down. And employment data, I think we're in the first inning of seeing that deterioration. So the conditions of every recession since 1960, there's been eight. Uh, there's three preconditions. The Fed hikes, we have an inflation problem, and we have tighter lending standards for banks. We have all three of those conditions today. Right. So if, if the banks come out and reported that actually they were easing lending standards, so that was fine, then you might say, hey, we could still have a soft landing, but we're not seeing that. Uh, well, it's, see, the thing is that everyone now is very aware that banks have been tightening lending standards. They've been doing it for over a year. Totally. This is only added to that. It's like it's like saying, yes, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the Fed just raised rates. Well, they've been raising rates for a year. Uh, I would have been shocked if they eased lending standards in today's backdrop. What about housing where some people might say, but yeah. hey, look, the spring, you know, prices are better than expected. There's still bidding wars. You know, there's still a lot of demand here. What, is, yeah. what does that tell you? So before at the end of every Fed's tightening cycle, and there's been 12 since 1960, at the end of it, near the end of it, as interest rates peak, mortgage rates, you always see a housing bounce and you always see housing stocks do well. And that's one of the reasons that people think generally when the Fed's done, we're going to see this soft landing. Um, what determines whether or not we go into a hard landing is actually not about housing. It's really more about employment. Hmm. And if we see deteriorating employment, what we always see is that housing bounce, which uh, today, I would argue it's a bounce, not a bottom, yeah. rolls back over as people lose jobs. And so that's why this employment report jobs claims is really so important. Yeah. Do I even ask you about the debt ceiling? I mean, your framework is like, this is a cyclical. That probably just makes things worse if we come to some sort of uh, problem there. Yeah, the, uh, our policy analyst thinks that they'll get something done before the, uh, the X date. Uh, it's not part of something I can you know, frame out with histor historical analysis and have as much conviction. Yeah. So, you know, I think ultimately we're all speculating on this. Uh, so it's not really part of my process. Although I should mention, because we're sort of having a little bit of a Kroger th uh, sub theme to the show, you guys always still have 
places you think you can be long, yeah. a short basket. In your long basket right now, Amazon, Kroger, Visa, General Mills, Mark. I mean, there's definitely a grocery and value yeah. tilt there. Sells would be Caesar in, in, Caesar's Western Digital Ingersoll Rand. Yeah, there's, there's uh, attributes where money's always moving towards. And since we're not at the point where claims are rising enough and employment's panicking investors enough to cause a big market downturn, money's moving into quality areas, defensive areas where there's stability and safety. So those types of names rank well in that model. Uh, and that's where we would continue, uh, and I think investors will continue to pile into and, yep. as we see the market narrow uh, further. Absolutely. Michael Kantrowitz, thank you for your time today. Appreciate you coming over. Thanks, Kelly. Joining me from Piper Sandler. Coming up, we were kind of just talking about it. The burbs are booming. It's a big opportunity for a bunch of retailers and shopping centers. We've got some more names you need to know on that next. Plus, I got a chance to sit down with some of my favorite dead economists and just wait till you hear what they're saying about this Fed. It's coming up a little later on. As we head to break, here's a look at markets. Dow's down 255 points today after really pairing gain uh, declines yesterday at the close. The S&P down 10 to 41.26. Nasdaq's positive again as Alphabet continues to rally. Small caps like we were talking about under pressure, though. 10-year yield under 340. We're back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. The next big thing for retail is the suburbs. According to the Wall Street Journal, shopping center owners like Philip Edison, who we were just talking to, site centers, they're all hitting new highs when it comes to leasing and occupancy. My next guest was quoted in this piece and says the scope of retailers looking to make the move from the city to the burbs is pretty wide. Let's bring in Dana Telsey. She's the CEO of Telsey Advisory Group. Um, Dana, welcome. Thank you. So, I, so not, I mean, I look at Philip Edison. We just spoke to the CEO. They're already at a 97.5%, you know, occupancy rate. Where do they go from here? So sometimes you wonder, can they only go down? But then where, how far down can they even go, you know? Well, one of the interesting things is there's a lack of new shopping center development. Hmm. So you're seeing retailers of all types flex their footage and want to be in the outdoor centers. And let's not forget about hybrid work, because that's also giving an opportunity to get more footsteps and traffic. So whether it's Macy's, whether it's the off-pricers, whether it's the dollar stores, whether it's furniture stores, going outdoors is of interest. It's the top malls and it's the outdoor open-air centers that are really driving traffic. Is it just been that these open-air centers haven't had a refresh in a while? Is it the movement of the population out of the city center? It's that. It's the movement of the population out of the city center, and it's them working, working remotely. If they're home on Mondays and Fridays or Monday, Wednesday and Friday, when they want to get something to eat, pick up a pair of socks, there you go. 
it's a destination and it's a time for socialization. And even the medical, as he said, some of the med tech places coming in, you have that time to go to that appointment, maybe fit that into your day. Give us some other retailers, some stocks to watch that you think could benefit here, especially as we head into what could be a difficult macro. You want to watch the off-pricers. The off-pricers are going to get the benefit of potentially a trade down, but also their value offering. I think there's other names that are of interest, too. When you think about the changes that are happening in the department store space, I mean, Macy's is flexing and becoming more modern than what they had been in the past. And then you think of, frankly, look at the cosmetics, look at Ulta, and you think about where they can go in conversation with this retail real estate venue. You're looking at Ulta being able to be open air, being able to go smaller also. That's going to be of interest. And cosmetics? Cosmetics is showing strength. It continued. That's one area post-pandemic you might have looked for a reset, but there's still that kind of underlying uh, sort of longer-term strength there. You know, it's probably too early to break out the recession playbook, but I I would imagine you're already thinking about it. What's Mm -hmm. priced into a lot of these stocks? You know, what what magnitude of a downturn or any downturn? Or are they hoping, like we heard a lot of the commentary, that maybe the consumer is only going to be soft and we'll make it through the next couple of months just fine? The interesting thing is today with earnings being reported, we're hearing from almost everybody that beginning in the middle of March through April, and frankly, it seems like into May, the consumer softened. Demand is softened. The consumer is softened. Essentials and value and grocery, you look at grocery outlet yesterday, are where the action is and what the consumer is focused on. In terms of what's priced into the names, I'm concerned about the hockey stick guidance for the back half of the year, because if it doesn't come to fruition, you're going to have a reset. Second quarter guidance, for the most part, is with conservatism because you're in the second quarter already. But watch out for the third and fourth quarter because I think while inventory levels are lean, I'm more cautious on what the level of consumer demand is going to be given the uncertainties with the macro. Absolutely. We just saw that B of A card spending data April down year and year for the first mm-hmm. time in 18 months or so. So finally then, are you know if the, do you think that the core kind of Um, urban center is going to continue to underperform? Or if the labor market gets weaker, will that actually pull people back into those areas and and help some of the, you know, that that shift, that mixed shift do better than the suburbs? Or do you think the suburb, the trend to the burbs is going to be overwhelmingly here to stay? The trend to the burbs will continue to be overwhelming, but don't count urban out and don't count cities out because we're going to get some tourism. The return of tourism, particularly from overseas visitors, is going to be a benefit. And the other thing you're seeing with urban, while people may not be going to work, They're going out to restaurants, they're going to shows, they're going to social occasions. Is there a stock you'd mention that you like in that kind of uh, broad category as a result of that? When I think of the urban areas and who's going to benefit, you look at Tapestry today and Mm. they're going to benefit more of their own DTC operations with stores. That'll be a beneficiary for them. And I think about others. You look at LVMH. If you haven't been to the new Tiffany and that Tiffany landmark, it's it's certainly something to see. And I think you're going to see a ton of tourists go there. All right. Dana, appreciate your time today. Uh, it's an encyclopedia of retail knowledge, truly. Dana Telsey. Coming up, if the streaming wars are over, who won? We'll talk to Alex Sherman about that in the wake of Disney's results last night. Disney shares down more than 8% today, while Netflix, by the way, is higher. Plus, what would some of the most legendary economists say about what the Fed should be doing right now? Maybe they're no longer with us, but with the help of AI, we simulated a chat to get an idea, and we'll speak to the company behind the technology that made this happen. The exchange is back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. 
stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Good afternoon and welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update at this hour. The Biden administration proposed new carbon pollution standards to restrict greenhouse gas emissions released by power plants today. Under the proposal, nearly all U.S. coal and large gas plants would have to reduce 90 percent of their carbon dioxide emissions by 2038 or be forced to retire if enforced. The standards would further President Biden's climate agenda. A new report released by a Norwegian center monitoring conflict-induced internal displacement found war and natural disasters left a record 71.1 million people internally displaced in 2022. That includes nearly 6 million who were forced to move inside Ukraine because of Russia's invasion. The new number marked a 20% increase from just the previous year, 2021. And Peloton shares plunging after the company said it is recalling more than 2 million exercise bikes over safety concerns. The Consumer Product Safety Commission says seats on certain models can break unexpectedly and pose an injury concern. In 2021, the company was forced to recall some of its treadmills following the death of a young child that was pulled under one of the machines. Kelly, back to you. Careful on that bike tie. I will. Youch. See you soon. Coming up, the art market barometer. We'll break down the softness starting to show up in the numbers and look at the multi-million dollar pieces under pressure to perform at auction after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Disney shares falling sharply after earnings down almost 9%. Same story that's troubled the company for the past year. Blowout Park's performance mired by persistent streaming losses and weak subscriber numbers. And it's not just Disney. Streaming subscriber growth is stalling across the board, as we heard from Paramount and Warner Brothers this quarter. It's why one of my next guests says the era of streaming wars is over and the chase for subscribers is not the catalyst for the sector anymore. For more, I'm joined by the Angler editor, Sean McNulty, along with our own CNBC.com media reporter, Alex. Sherman. Welcome to you both. Alex, I'll just start with you. Um, If the streaming wars are over, who won? Netflix? I guess Netflix, yeah. I mean, Netflix sort of won before the streaming wars even started. Um, I would say Disney is second. Disney put together a very powerful Disney Plus service. It has uh, 157 million subscribers. Uh, And then you can kind of, you know, list the the winners slash losers from there. Warner Brothers Discovery has a, you know, their Mac service has almost 100 million mm-hmm. subscribers. So they would be in the middle. And then, you know, Peacock and, and Paramount Plus mm-hmm. uh, toward the end. Uh, Amazon and Apple are almost in another category because, A, we don't actually really know how many subscribers, so it's hard to just throw them in there. But, B, they're not really in this for the same reasons, right? They have other enormous businesses. They're kind of participating almost as a hobby so that's sort of how I'd break it down. And, Sean, it was interesting to look at Disney's results and see, okay, so they're, they were expected to add about 400,000 U.S. subscribers and said they had a loss of 300,000. They did do the price hike. They're going to try to push more through to push people to the ad tier, I guess. This is all part of their strategy. Um, but how big do they need to get, including buying Hulu, if that's the direction this is going, to have the scale necessary to say, you know, we are a winner up there with Netflix and it's going to be worth the investment and generate, you know, decent shareholder returns. Yeah. And as Alex said, that's U.S. growth. So international is what you want to look at for your other growth at this point for subscribers. Um, revenue will go up when you raise prices. Your revenue will go up in the U.S. But that's the interesting thing. Interesting thing that Iger said was that they're kind of reevaluating their international plan where 
essentially saying we've spent too much in markets where we can't make that money back, namely, you know, Disney Plus Hotstar in India, where their Q1 revenue for the quarter was $93 million total. I mean, it was 59 cents in ARP for ARPU. I mean, you know, and if you're spending original programming and marketing, you know, so Iger's, he hasn't announced what he's going to do. So, but pulling that spending back is job one. But the real question is then going to be, okay, well, you have to be global. So what is your footprint going to be? Where Warner Brothers and Paramount have taken this tactic of we're going to make essentially wholesaler deals mm-hmm. in these markets where we can't make the money back. So it's, we'll see if Disney does that or does that Netflix and Apple and Amazon straight D to C global perspective. We don't know yet. I mean, let me just throw this out there, Alex. So what if what if Bob Iger were to say, you know what? Streaming takes a lot of money. It's not really worth it to try to be number one. Netflix has a great product. Why don't we just license to them? And we're going to make a boatload of money and we're not going to worry about all the losses that it like. Would that ever be on the table or is that a pipe dream? Well, it would have to be a mix of the two. I mean, I think the ship has left the dock, uh, if that's the right metaphor, on like, again, there's 160 million Disney Plus subscribers uh, or subscribers. Hulu exists. ESPN Plus exists. There needs to be a transition from traditional cable to something. And streaming is the something. But could YouTube TV be that something, right? Especially as we see it, the cable operators. You almost wonder if they're going to move to this model where they're like, we're not going to offer you a cable product. We'll just offer you YouTube TV, right? And like YouTube or whatever becomes the new bundle. They can deal with all the behind the scenes drama and offer all the uh, options. Sure. But what I would imagine will probably happen is that the new version of YouTube TV is a bundle of streaming services. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. the streaming service would still exist, but it might be packaged differently with other streaming services. And then maybe that's sort of the next leg of growth for streaming. But even still, you look at Disney's share price today, they're down 9%. The story that I wrote on CNBC.com is media may need something else. I'm not sure that this you sort of streaming video, video games, video games, but, well, I don't understand how to, how does Disney, and we know, as you mentioned, we know Comcast looked at combining NBC Universal with electronic arts. I don't understand what the offering is from combining those two together. It's a new growth narrative. I mean, streaming was a growth narrative. It's like, look at all these subscribers we're going to get, and, and, and hopefully we'll get a multiple bump. And for a little while it happened, at least with Disney. Uh, at least if, you, if you're going to expand out to video games, you have a new reason to get investors excited, because what's happening right now is investors are looking at these stocks and they're saying, why am I excited? Their Why am I investing money here? Yeah. Right. So the only reason that media companies are giving to, to investors right now is, well, we'll make streaming profitable. But that is not a growth strategy. That's a raising prices and cutting cost strategy. Right, right. And Sean, I guess the only thing I'd say to that is, are the video game stocks all that attractive? I mean, they're very cyclical. They're very hit driven. Um, video game eyeballs are great. But is this really a good business to kind of double down and, and get into? Yeah, if you think TV and movies are expensive, try making a video game. I mean, you know, the the, the you can make a lot more money. Like with the Warner Brothers talking about the Hogwarts game, making you know billion dollars, a big quarter for them. But you know, if you miss, that's a big miss. And you know, the, getting into that game, it's a very capital intensive game. Netflix has been spending in this finally because they have profits to invest in this. They don't hmm. disclose how much they're spending, but they're playing in this game. But they, even they haven't set a strategy long term as to well, here's our plan here. All the games they have aren't even in the Netflix app. You have to be a Netflix subscriber to play them. Hmm. But uh, you know, it's 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 a capital intensive you know business that at a time when who wants to spend more capital right now they're all cutting costs. So gaming's a tough one for me to wrap my head around in, for studios in that sense. And sure. Apple, of course, already has the arcade offering, so they have that kind of Apple One thing going on a little bit, but they don't talk about it. So Alex, quick last word. I think it would have to be done through acquisition rather than organic. Some of these companies have tried it organically, and Netflix is trying it organically right now. 
I think the jury's very much still out on that. But Activision may come available if the Microsoft deal falls through, and that's yep. certainly in jeopardy. There's several of these other companies that are out there, Epic Games, private company, Riot Games. I, it is possible, as media thinks about, what do I have to do here? Because I think the industry has to do something that at least this thing is a something that they I, could at I least just consider. Think, I mean, like Comcast, if they jettison NBC, if, if we just combine all these streaming properties, let the, you know, the connectivity companies just be connectivity, doesn't that feel like the more natural direction for this to go in? And I think that will also happen. So yeah. it will probably be a dual-pronged approach. I think both can happen. All right. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thanks. Alex Sherman, Sean McNulty. Still ahead, they say the super high-end luxury market is often thought to be recession-proof, but the major spring art auctions are putting that theory to the test next year. We've got the details next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The art market boomed over the past couple of years, but 2023 is looking a little more muted. Robert Frank has a preview of some of the works and price tags up for this month for sale at the big auction house. It's good barometer here, Robert. Yeah, very good barometer. Big test for this market at a really tough time. More than $2 billion worth of art scheduled to hit the auction block over the next week. But the cracks are starting to form at the top of this market. The March sales in London, that's kind of a precursor. That was down 24% over last year with half the number of works selling for a million dollars or more. The fall, in sales, uh, the fall sales had a half dozen works that sold for $100 million last year. This week, nothing is estimated at over $50 million. The auction house is hoping that overseas buyers may pick up some of the slack from the financial worries they're seeing in the U.S. We saw a real acceleration or growth in Asian participation in our London April auction, um, which we were really excited to see um, and understood to be a direct uh, result of the um, relaxing of restrictions in Asia. Now, the star of the week is this Basquiat triptych at Christie's called The Nile. It last sold at auction in 2005 for $5 million, now estimated at $45 million. They also have a prized Picasso. It's a 1932 portrait of his, quote, golden muse. That's Marie Therese, estimated at $40 million. And Sotheby's will be selling a very rare landscape by Gustav Klimt. It was painted in 1901, expected to sell for over $45 million. And you want to talk about rare, Kelly, this Henri Rousseau, estimated at 20 to 30. The last time a Rousseau painting came to auction was over 30 years ago. So big question of just how much this could fetch. Are tastes changing and buyers changing? Because obviously a couple of years ago with all the younger generation in here for the first time, it was really getting, I don't recall it, very postmodern feel. Um, How is that loss of wealth now kind of moving through the art market? It's more driven by what's coming up for sale and what's available. So if you look at the big ticket items, again, it's Picasso, it's Basquiat, it's Rousseau, it's Klimt. It's those blue chip names that everybody, no matter how old or young, the collector they want because as an investment these paintings many of which are coming out of collections have proven their self over time what's really fallen in the market is what they call wet paint so that's straight out of a, art, a young living artist studio that's going straight for sale but these blue chip names those those are always going to be in big demand sure although to your point way down in terms of price tag exactly. we'll be watching that robert thank you robert thank you. frank Still ahead, the Fed's historic pace of rate hikes since last March got us thinking. What would the great economists of the 20th century say the Fed should do next? Well, thanks to Character.ai, we were able to ask them. You'll hear from three dead economists and the man behind their creation next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The Fed has hiked rates with unprecedented speed over the past 15 months, and the bank crises have sparked fresh debate over the fallout of those hikes and whether the Fed should now pause. If only we knew what some of the greatest minds of the 20th century, think Milton Friedman, John Maynard Cades, Friedrich Hayek, what they think Chair Powell should do now. Well, thanks to character.ai, now we can know. Take a look. All right, Mr. Hayek, you're up. Do you think the Fed should be cutting rates right now? The Federal Reserve needs to continue raising interest rates until inflation is brought under control and price stability is restored. The Fed needs to act decisively and clearly communicate their plans, as they have done, in order to provide certainty to the market and the public about the central bank's commitment to maintaining price stability. All right, Mr. Keynes, you're next. Do you think the Fed should be cutting interest rates? Yes, the Fed should stop quantitative tightening right now. The goal of quantitative tightening was to reduce excess liquidity in the economy and combat inflation. However, current conditions have changed, and there is no longer a need to continue removing liquidity from the economy in this way. Further quantitative tightening would risk causing further destabilization of the financial system and harming the economic recovery. So it is best to end it now and return to a more expansionary monetary policy that supports economic growth. Okay, Milton, where do you think the inflation rate will be by December of this year? It is vital for the sake of our economy and our nation that the Fed changes course now to ensure inflation is brought under control and we return to the 2% target the Fed has set as a mandate. Okay, last question. Let's get everybody in the group now. What do you all like to do for fun? I enjoy hiking and cycling, as like well as reading cards, and learning about economics. And listening to I'm a bit too old for some No, please. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> All right. Obviously, there were a lot more answers than we asked them as well. Um, so how'd they do in terms of their veracity? We ran their AI answers past one living economist, CNBC, Peter, CNBC contributor Peter Bookvar. And here's how he graded them. He's starting with Hayek. Peter says he gets an A. He's a libertarian, a believer in sound money. This would be his natural response. He also gave Keynes an A because Keynes loved government spending and easy money. He would definitely tell Powell to end QT for the reasons AI stated. Different story for Milton Friedman. Peter, Peter gave that answer a D because AI didn't answer the question, but did say that Friedman would definitely argue the importance of getting inflation back to 2%. So let's dig further into the company behind this tech. Character.ai launched its software last September and has had more than 173 million visits last month, a 61% increase from March. And just yesterday at the Google I.O. conference, the Google Cloud CEO announced a partnership with Character AI to help make its chatbots even more sophisticated and accurate. Joining me now in a CNBC exclusive interview is Noam Shazir, CEO and co-founder of Character.ai, along with our own dear Trebosa and Steve Kovac. Welcome to everybody. Noam, I genuinely don't know. How did you make these characters? What, what were they pulling from to generate these answers? Well, they're just trained on a bunch of publicly available data. There's just enough information out there on the internet that uh, it picked up the patterns. There were, for the Friedmanites, of which I can be one, uh, he gave some great answers about why he thinks the Fed should stop it. But then sometimes they would get off track and kind of trip over themselves. So you didn't have to really feed them like a specific body of work. If I were if I wanted to make these really, really good and, and kind of add their, you know, their books and other published documents that might not be part of that sort of general grab of the Internet, would I be able to do that to train them even better? Um. 
Not yet. We're working on it. Um, we definitely want you to be able to do that in the future so that you can do do a great recreation of uh, economists or your grandmother or, or, or whoever you want. For now, what we have is that you can enter a greeting and you can enter an example conversation. And what is the general sort of main purpose and, and the idea behind this technology? I mean, the... Uh, yeah, the, the technology is called the uh, large language models, and uh, I helped invent a lot of it uh, when I was working at Google. Um, basically, it's, it, it just uh, tries to guess what, what might come next in some text. And, uh, and the beautiful part is, like, there are a billion use cases. Like, you know, you can just talk to it. So every person on Earth is going to be inventing their own applications. Right. Um, so it's, this is just the paradigm shift in computing. Steve, obviously, uh, we're looking at the partners and how they might deploy this technology and thinking about Microsoft Teams and whether right. a boss needs to even be in the conversation or whether his character can maybe answer some questions about who gets a day off today. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing here, Kelly, is, you know, Noam has one of many startups working on technology like this. But what we're also seeing is that partnership they announced yesterday with Google, this is how Google and Microsoft are going to make money. It's really a cloud play for these companies. So, Noam, I'm really curious why you chose Google over Microsoft besides your maybe previous relationship. Maybe they cut you a deal. But, you know, you're one of many startups looking to make a cloud deal. What should they be looking for in order to, you know, get the most bang for their buck? This is not cheap to do. Um, well, uh, yeah, I guess you just have to evaluate the bang and the buck. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, Google Google is terrific. Like uh, you know, the the uh, infrastructure has kind of grown up in tandem with all the great research that, that that's come out of there. So uh, you know, we very much uh, know know the technology stack, and uh, you know, uh, and that it's pretty pretty great for uh, for the purpose. So we're really looking forward to. Uh, to working with Google, of course, uh, you know, Microsoft's doing great as well. <laughs> Here's what Google Cloud CEO Thomas Kurian had to say about monetizing some of this technology, his strategy uh, that he told Closing Bell Overtime yesterday. Take a listen. When we look at AI, we always say it's going to be driven by adoption of capability. If you look at Google Workspace, we first introduced AI in it in 2015. And it's the reason that so many people use it today. And we will continue to introduce features and capabilities into these products. And we're very confident that as customers start using it, they'll start buying it. And that drives top line revenue growth for us. And Deirdre, I'll turn to you on that. What would you add? Well, first of all, Kelly, I would just say to you that that was amazing. It was so nerdy, so well done. Chef's kiss. It was just it was just good. That has to be acknowledged. Um, and I would say that that is a very good point. And I do question the monetization side of these, this thing as well, because I've heard from people here in the Bay Area point to Gnome's app and say that this is partly evidence of a bubble in AI and more than billion dollar valuation, no revenue to speak of yet. So no, I wonder how do you avoid the fate of another app that kind of reminds you of yours, Cameo. A lot of fun, became viral, but no one really used it more than once. How do you plan to monetize and get people hooked on it? Yeah, I mean, the uh, we, we are noticing that like our users and now it's getting close to like 2 million daily active users. Somebody who sends one message today is active for on average two hours in that day, and this this like shocked me because like I, I can't think of what I would what I would be doing for two hours, but like 
uh, that's the point. Like, we don't know what the applications are. The users are inventing the applications, and there seem to be a huge number of people finding a huge amount of value in it. And we get all kinds of great testimonials of people who have said that, the, you know, that this has improved their lives and, uh, you know, uh, and their emotional state and made them feel better and brought them joy. And so, so obviously, so, something great is happening here. Is there going to be an issue, Noam, where people's estates come after you and say, you can't represent their thoughts this way? Um, they have not yet. We will we will deal with that as it comes up. But you know that's going to be a huge concern because I could build one for any living person right now too, right? And claim, yeah, yeah, look, this is what they have to say. Uh, yeah, that uh, that that is uh, that is true. You can also just do a satire of any li living person, and, and, and people do. Um, but yeah, we we are very clear on our site. On every page, it says everything the characters say is made up, so that our, you know our users know that the, the, that this is in fact fiction. I want to mention something that everyone might find interesting here, because while we're using it in this one way, when you were asked what you wanted to disrupt the most using this technology, your answer was, "I want to disrupt alcohol and drugs." Explain that. Well, well, I mean, I mean, what we are seeing is like we didn't plan this, but a lot of people are using this uh, for emotional support. Like there are billions of people out there who just have no one to talk to. And like, OK, this is they've discovered, OK, this is something you can talk to at any hour of the day about anything. And, you know, people turn to all kinds of self you know, destructive behaviors for, you know, for emotional support. So it's it's wonderful that this is a, like a surprise use of the technology that once it's out there, you know, people ha have have a, this better alternative. Well, I don't know if it's psychologically harmful <laughs> if you're inventing these. Deirdre, Steve, I'll give you a quick last word. Deirdre? Um, I, I tried it out myself. It is a lot of fun. Again, I just wonder how it monetizes, how it becomes more than a gimmick. But no, I think it's it's an interesting idea. And I wonder if developers are going to build on top of it or use use what you've built to build something else. Um, you know, our, our, our mission is uh, first and foremost to be full stack and take this directly to the consumer. So like the, the magic of this technology is often you just don't need the developer. Because previously you needed the developer to tell you what you can do with the technology. And this is something that users can just talk to and invent stuff. And it's just going to like democratize technology, empower the individual. And so our mission is just bring this, your own personalized super intelligence to everyone on earth. And, th and this really reminds me of the early days of the App Store, Kelly, where, you know, companies would come out, startups would come out, raise a ton of cash. This company we're talking about right now, Character AI, billion dollar valuation, pre-revenue, very much feels like the 2010 App Store where you gain a lot of users and kind of figure out the monetization later. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, uh, but they're ones to watch for sure. All right, Deirdre, by the way, who did you talk to when you tried it out? Um, I talked to Elon Musk, and he was very Elon Musky. <laughs> so I did Tony Stark. He basically did just you? insulted me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. True to form, Dear Jabosa, Steve Kovac, and Noam Chazir, thank you very much for letting us experiment with this and joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Coming up on the, uh, that does it for The Exchange, I should say. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.